So the scripture reading today is Ecclesiastes 8, 1 through 17. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command, because God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, who can tell him how it will be. No man has power to restrain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over him to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked, wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because the fear because they fear before him. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is vanity that takes place on earth, that there, is, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So when I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to see the busyness that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, much man, much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is God's word. Thank you, Anthony. Well, good morning, guys. It is great to be with you this morning, back with you. Um, and uh, if you haven't yet, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be working through this uh, incredible passage this morning uh, together. Uh, but as we're, we're looking there, I want to ask you, um, are things going uh, the way that you want them to right now in your life? Show of hands, anybody? Everything's going exactly the way that you want it to? Anybody? Nobody. Okay. Well, I guess it's just, just me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but really, no, I mean, things don't go the way that we want them to, do they? Um, and so then the question is, how do we navigate a life in a fallen world where things aren't going the way that we want them to? And the fact of the matter is we all face really hard realities uh, many of us are facing really difficult realities right now. Some of those are shared with each other, and some of those are more personal to each other. 
I mean, how often just in the last week alone did you have the thought where you went, well, this isn't going the way that I'd hoped? I mean, just in the last week alone, right? I mean, my wife literally just texted me saying, we didn't make it to church because our van battery is dead, right? Right now, life is not going the way that she wants it to go, nor I do or anything. I mean, even from the smallest places to way more significant um, places, right? In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, what's great about this chapter is it's speaking to this frustration. It's speaking exactly to this frustration. And it begins by telling us that this shows on our faces. This frustration shows on our faces. Look again in verse 1. What does it say? Who is like the wise who knows the interpretation of a thing? We're kind of meant to think of somebody like a Joseph right there from Genesis, right? Joseph was a, was a man who was unjustly treated by his brothers. He was wrongfully imprisoned, but Pharaoh had some crazy dreams, and someone's like, hey, Joseph can interpret dreams. And so he fetched for Joseph, and Joseph comes, listens to Pharaoh's dreams, and says, this is what your dreams mean. And Joseph, therefore, was a wise man. So in a real sense, you read that, who is like Joseph, right? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? But then what does it say? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. Our countenance changes when we walk through life with wisdom. But then it says what? And the hardness of his face is changed. The hardness of his face is changed. That means there's a hardness to our face just when we face the different realities in life. You could see it on your face. So that's why when somebody walks into a room, you often can look at that person and immediately go, what's wrong? Don't just say anything. Also, the opposite's true. Sometimes people walk in, you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? Tell me. It's clear that, that there's something joyful in your heart. And the interesting thing, though, about this initial verse is that, what does it say? It's not that your circumstances change and that changes your face. It's that you have wisdom and that's what changes your face. So it's wisdom that is reflected even in a person's face. So what does wise living look like for someone trying to navigate a fallen world where things aren't going the way? that you want them to. Well, I actually, uh, not to stress you out, I have seven points. I'm going to work through it fast, okay? Um, I know that's rare for me, but I do. Uh, The first is I want to look at four realities that this passage teaches that harden our face. We're just going to use those words from verse 1. Four realities that harden our face. we got to look at them. We're going to be honest about life. But then I want us to see three pathways of wisdom that will make your face shine. Three pathways of wisdom that will make your face shine. So let's look at the first hard reality. Hard reality number one, we see in verses two through five, is having to submit to imperfect and sometimes unreasonable authorities. Look at verse two. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. Literally, no harm will happen to him is what it means. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So if you want to make anybody comfortable, we all know you just start talking about politics, right? That's how you make everybody comfortable. So I thought that's what we do this morning. Um, No, really, though, this verse right here and this hard reality number one Let's just be honest, more than most years or seasons of our life, this has challenged us this year. We can sympathize with these verses here. 
And what we could do is we could summarize the hard reality of these verses 2 through 5 just by simply saying, uh, obey the king. That's what he says to do. Obey the king. Why? Because the king's word is law. The king's word is law. So it's better to obey than to suffer harm. That's what it's saying. That's, that's wisdom. Verse 5 again says, we'll know no evil thing. That literally just means you will not suffer harm. But then how does that verse end? It says, wisdom will give you the ability to know when to speak up and the proper time for that and the right way of doing that. Right? It doesn't mean you just always spout off, but there's a rightness to things and wisdom will teach you that. And the fact of the matter is, is that you'll want to speak up at times because you'll find yourself saying what it says in verse 4. What does it say? What are you doing? What are you doing? I mean, this is a hard reality because we don't like being told what to do. I mean, nobody likes being told what to do unless what you're being told to do is what you actually want to do. Then you're fine with being told what to do, right? I don't know if you guys like Jack Handy's deep thoughts. You guys know Jack Handy's deep thoughts? Anybody? Just me? Uh, he said, I think in one of my previous lives, I was a mighty king because I like people to do what I say. All right? We don't, might not have a previous life like Jack Handy did, but um, at the same time, we, we resonate with that, right? We like telling people what to do. And so it's a hard reality to be under leadership that you disagree with, right? But even more so under bosses, under institutions, under social environments where you are told that you have to tolerate certain things, participate in certain things, join in certain things, certain agendas, and that if you don't, there will be consequences for you. Maybe you'd lose your job. Maybe your kids can't go to a certain school. Maybe you can't sit on a certain board or serve in an organization or be a part of the family anymore even. Maybe you can't be a part of this friend group. Maybe you can't be a part of this social sphere. There is power in people, and even in a few people at times, they're going to tell you to do certain things. They're going to tell you to say certain things or think certain things that'll cause you at times to go, well, that's not true, or even more so to go, what are you doing? It's a hard reality, right? Hard reality number two. You see in verses six through nine, and this reality is feeling powerless over our present and over the future. Read with me in verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt." If you can think back to, to chapter 3, um, our big dilemma was that we grope or long for things that are permanent. And we saw that poem, that there's a time for this and a time for that. There's not a permanence to things. But here, we're seeing that we long for things that are predictable. We, we long for things that are predictable. I mean, I was just thinking back to when I was growing up as a kid, I would watch Sports Center religiously. And back when I was a kid growing up watching SportsCenter, all it was was highlights of the games that were previously played. It was just announcement of the news, basically. But now if you ever watch sports, all it is is analysis. It's speculation. It's prediction. It's who's going to win the game, right? And what, who thinks who's going to win the game or where is this athlete going to end up or something like that. And for all the sports talks 
talk, no one actually knows who's going to win the game until when the game's actually played. Right? No one knows where a player's going to go until when the player actually goes there. If you don't like sports, you can think of movies, right? And you know what it's like to sit next to somebody during a movie and they keep talking, right? They keep asking you questions like, why is she doing that? Where is she going? What's going to happen, right? And our response is, I don't know. We have to watch the movie and we'll find out, right? That's the same. This is a hard reality because we want to know what's coming, don't we? This is why, this is why, even in Christianity, you guys, you will find people write things or post things or make YouTube videos that gain lots of traction where people are trying to make predictions or even claims that they say is prophecy about what's going to happen in the future. And people flock to it because it preys on this idea that we want what's predictable. We want to know. We have these fears of uncertainty. We want to prepare. And so when somebody bold enough steps up and says, what they think is going to happen, that resonates with us in our fears. And so we gravitate towards those predictions. But Ecclesiastes 8 tells you, right, that we don't know. We don't know. No one can tell us what will happen. Will I be able to see my dreams come into reality? Will the economy be stable? Will my life be long or will it be short? What nation's going to rise and fall? And then furthermore, verse 8 points to this future reality that we can't control death itself. And that's really troubling to us because what does it say? We can't restrain our spirit. It says that first, no one has the power to restrain our spirit, right? Which literally means power over the wind. So imagine yourself trying to restrain the wind of a tornado or a hurricane or something. That's the image that you have in trying to restrain your own spirit. But tied to that, the verse, that line continues and says, we do not have power over the day of death. Think about trying to restrain the winds of a tornado. You have the same effectiveness in having power over your day of death. Right? Doctors may be able to treat our diseases in their wisdom, but in the end, the day of death comes for every single one of us. Again, we're powerless. And then he likens this to being in battle. He says there's no discharge from battle. And if you've ever fought in a battle, which I technically haven't, but, but I would imagine that once you're in the army and you're in the battle, you can't just say, hey, I'm going to go on a furlough for a minute. Right? You can't get out. You're, you're in the battle. You're fighting. You can't just go home. And fourth, it says, even the wicked, they may seem to flourish, they they seem to do whatever they please, no one can stop them, but no matter how powerful they are, they cannot escape the consequences of their life, death. So verse 9 then ends, he has this uh, grand statement, I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, while man had power over man to his hurt. Just this big summary statement of these first nine verses. As in summary, he's saying we can't keep ourselves alive. We don't know when our death comes. We can't cheat death. We can't control our life. And I don't mean to be very depressing this morning, but, but, but we must come to grips with the fact that we could die this week. It doesn't matter your age. It's not in your control. And this is a hard reality because we want to plan. We want to know how much time we have so we can do the things that we want to do and steward it well, but we don't know. Hard reality number three says seeing the wicked or literally the guilty people honored and prospering. Look at verse 10. I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city 
where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Uh, Verse 10 tells you that there are people who are wicked, literally guilty, and they know it. And they're doing this religious posturing, presenting themselves a certain way, and they're being buried and they're being honored, they're being praised, even though they've been wicked. He's like, I'm watching this. And we've kind of seen people like that. We've experienced things like this where you know a person for who they really are, but they've done a really good job of faking it to everybody else. And so you see their applause. You see their honor, but you're like, I really know that person, right? We've struggled with this before. They're being praised when maybe we think they shouldn't be, right? Verse 11 then says, if evil deeds were punished more quickly, people wouldn't be so unrestrained in doing evil, Right? But so evil's going unpunished, that's a hard reality. And then verse 14 says, seeing get sin go unpunished is a hard reality, but seeing this great swap of treatment, well, that's even worse. Right? People who do harm, watching them prosper, watching people who are really doing the right thing and following God faithfully, being treated wrongly, well, that, that's, that seems to be pretty messed up. And I, I wonder if you've felt that way before. Maybe you've been somebody who's in your mind, like followed God faithfully your whole life, and yet you're looking around the world and you're seeing people who seem to be prospering and you're, you're almost seemingly being punished in this world for doing what is right in God's eyes. We might struggle with this. It's a hard reality. And then hard reality number four we find in verse 17. And the hard reality is this. If God is overseeing all this, how can we make sense of that? I mean, this is the question, right? What does it say? Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. I mean, if we're honest, we read up in verse 4, where we see these um, unreasonable authorities maybe over you, where you would say, what are you doing? But let's be honest, we apply that same line of questioning to God, don't we? But we look around the world, all the work of God, verse 17 says, and we want to find it out. We go, God, what are you doing? And here, three times, it says, man cannot find it out. You cannot find it out. Right? This was our original problem even with our first parents, right, in the Garden of Eden, where they were told not to eat of the forbidden fruit, but they took and they ate. Why? Because they weren't content in their limitation. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to know things, right? And so even here, the author of Ecclesiastes, the more he tried to find out, right? The more he tried, the more he failed. And it's not as if you and I just had better methods. It's not if you and I just had more time. 
It's not if we just had more research and more data, we could find it out. No, the problem that's being expressed here in verse 17 has way more to do with the fact that God is God and I am not, and there is a gap of understanding that exists between us. So there are just things I cannot find out. And so when I look around the world at all these hard realities, and even if you think of all the ones that have come before this chapter in Ecclesiastes, it's difficult to, to wrestle with that and go, okay, God, if you're over this, how do I make sense of that? So these are the four hard realities in our text, and these will bring anxiety, these will bring sorrow to our hearts, and, and that'll show on your face, right? So how do we respond to these hard realities? Well, I can think of three temptations before we move on um, that I think is important to point out here. There are three temptations in our world of how we respond to these hard realities. I think, first of all, is that many of us will seek to take the power from the people that we think unreasonably yield it and take it from them in order to make the world right ourselves. Right? This is, this is revolution language. Right? So if the problem is that the government is corrupt and ungodly, then we need to take back the government. Right? We're like Boromir in Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring who wants to seize the ring of power thinking that he could wield that power for good. Okay, but no one wields that ring. The ring wields you, is what that book says. Lord Acton said the same thing. He said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if we just think, if I could have the ring myself, it'll be better for this world. Man, we realize that the pressed can often become the oppressors and the solution is often worse than the problem. But secondly, then some of us think, well, man, I'm just going to join the system, right? If you can't beat them, join them, right? And so we begin to even work in the system. And, and this can become very familiar even within our own Christian faith where we see people in our day sort of confuse the gospel of Jesus with the American dream. We confuse what it means to be salt and light, and instead we try to achieve heaven on earth, yet the heaven that we so often are after has us at the center with our will just being done. And so a lot of us land in the third category where we simply check out. We just kind of give up, right? We disengage, right? We pretend that none of it really matters. And I'll just be honest, I confess that this is probably the temptation that I wrestle with the most, right? I feel like I'm a pretty optimistic guy. You know, these people have accused me of being optimistic in my life but I'm generally not optimistic when it comes to the realm of the world and politics and things like that, okay? Maybe it's because I was a former political science major and I have a little PTSD from that, I don't really know, but, um, but checking out, you guys, is not the way forward because it's not the way of wisdom. The way forward is neither to hijack everything and try to become like Emperor Constantine, right, nor to join the world, and it's not to ignore the world. So how do we respond? How do we find our way through the thick forest of life in such a way that we're faithful to God, yet we engage fruitfully with the world? Well, what is needed according to this chapter is wisdom. It's wisdom. By, by wisdom, we're talking about something more than knowledge. We're talking about the knowledge that God actually gives to us, but then wisdom that He gives us to actually make the connections. Like, it's one thing to know what a key is, and it's one thing to know what a lock is, right? We can have knowledge of those things, but it's wisdom that would say this key goes with this lock, right? That, that's wisdom. It's living according to God's perspective, and that's what we need for navigating this life. And so in order to do that, we're actually given these three pathways forward. This is wisdom that the author would tell you that'll make your face shine, 
That's what he's talking about in verse 1. Wisdom that'll make your face shine in the midst of really hard realities in this world. Okay, so the first thing, the first wisdom pathway that'll make your face shine, number one is what? It's respect authority. Respect authority. Let's go back to verse 2. What does it say? Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Or possibly you could say because of your oath to God. So this person is being told to obey the king, to respect this person's authority. And what's interesting is that the reason he is to obey is somehow rooted in God. You understand that? Right? Whether it's because God made an oath to this king or because the person swore allegiance to the king before God, there is a recognition that God is the one who has placed the king in authority, the same king who is perhaps prone to even abuse his authority. And I think this lines up really closely with what we read about in the New Testament, right? We, we read places like 1 Peter chapter 2 where it says, be subject for Jesus' sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme, to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Or we read about this in the life of Paul, right? In Romans chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And then you think it's just Paul or it's just Peter. Recognize Jesus even said in Luke chapter 20, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So though human authority and human government is not perfect, whether it's in your workplace, in your school, in your, you know, the civic life, God is the one who put it in place. And the wise person you're being told here will respect it. Now, that's easier to say than it is to follow, right? right what about Christians living under dictators? Or what about Christians living in uh, maybe like an oppressive Muslim or Hindu world where if you convert to Christ, that means you're going to die? Right? What about being told that you have to adhere or do certain things in your job or else you're going to be fired? Right? It's easy on paper, but when you actually start living it out, what do you do? And that's where we need to look at that second pathway, which is what? The second pathway of wisdom here is to fear God, to fear God. We see this down in verses uh, 12 and 13, this theme here. So when we hear an instruction to obey the king and respect authority, most of us, I think, immediately ask the question, um, okay, so when do I not follow that authority, right? Is there a limit on our obedience to people in authority over us? What, what if that authority tells me to disobey God? And so when we come to this place of fearing God, uh, people populate our thinking, right? I think of people like Polycarp, right? One of the early church fathers who chose to be burned alive in the Roman Colosseum because he would not denounce his faith in Jesus, Maybe you've heard of Helmuth von Moltke, who was um, in World War II. He was drafted as a counterintelligence in the Nazi Germany army. Right? But he was a devout Christian, and so um, he used his high position to rescue prisoners from certain death. And he was accused of treason, actually. He was put on trial. He was sentenced to die. And he wrote his wife a final letter. Her wife, her, her name was Freya. And he described the dramatic moment in his trial when the judge launched into a tirade over his faith in Christ. The judge says, only in one respect does the national socialism resemble Christianity. He shouted, we demand the whole man. We demand the whole man. And the judge asked him, 
to declare his ultimate loyalty to Hitler. He says, from whom do you take your orders? From the other world? So he doesn't even talk about God. He won't even name it. He just says, the other world? Or from Adolf Hitler? Where lie your loyalty and faith? The man died. He feared God. So we're called to respect authorities, but if we ever find ourselves in a place where we have to choose between obeying God or obeying man, we need to remember that God is the one that we ultimately fear. So as Peter said to the rulers in Jerusalem when they told him, you cannot preach the gospel in Acts chapter 5, he says, we must obey God rather than men. So fearing God over man, that that provides wise clarity for us in how we live our lives. But in order to do that, we must be clear on what God has told us to obey. And we must make sure that we aren't using the fear of God as sort of a get-out-of-anything-I-want-to-do card in life. Me wielding the fear God card doesn't mean that I just use that because I, I would think that God wants my life to be easier to go the way that I want it to go. No, obedience has to do with worship who you worship. That, that's fundamentally what we're talking about when we talk about obeying God, and it has to do with our character. Obedience has to do with worship and character. And so many Christians need the courage to fear God over man, and when we do, that is a balm for our soul. We read down in verses 12 to 13, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. If you look at those verses, it looks like it's this contradiction saying, does the wicked live long or do they not live long? And it's kind of both. Basically, he's saying it'll appear that they prolong their life in their wickedness. And so you're sitting there going, man, why is this person prospering? But the end of it all, when he stands before God, his life is not prolonged in that regard, right? They will stand before God, right? But if you're a Christian and you fear God, this is telling you that this is a balm for your soul. But some of us need to be persuaded back towards this fear of God, back towards this fear of God, instead of seeking out this world's approval. Why? Because it will not be well with those who do not fear God. So it says in verse 13, it will not be well with them. Do you see this, you guys? To fear God, in other words, recognizes that all of this life under the sun has its end in God. And so do we. So do we. And so it says, it will be well with those who fear God. I love how Isaiah 3 says, tell the righteous, it will be well with them. Tell them, it will be well with them. For those who fear God, who are the righteous? It's those who fear God. That's who they are. And so we must be reminded to fear God, guys, that's simply to recognize that God is God and that I am not, and then we need to treat God that way. That's what it looks like to fear God. Only God is wise enough to accomplish His purposes and sort everything out. I mean, as we saw earlier, we looked down in verses 16 to 17, we realized that God's plan is beyond us. And although we cannot find it out, our fear of God is actually manifested. When we cannot find it out, we may ask God the hard questions, I can't make sense of this life. But our fear of God is demonstrated when after we ask the hard questions, 
we are then confident that God knows what He's doing. He knows what He's doing. And although I cannot find it out, I fear Him. And so I don't need to know. And I think of uh, an example of this, I think, really clearly, is in the life of Peter. Um, I love this. John chapter 6 is one of my favorite stories. And in there, you have Jesus saying, he's the bread of life. And then he has all these really hard teachings. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And people are like, I think I'm out, right? And everybody leaves. And then all that's left is Peter and the 12, right? And Jesus says, are you going to go away as well? And what does Peter say? Where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Right? The world might be going this way, but I'm staying here. He feared Jesus in the right sense. It drew him nearer to him. It kept him close. So if we fear God, if we trust him, if we recognize he's sovereign over all, we're also free to follow this third pathway, and that is to enjoy life. Look at verse 15. What does it say? I commend joy. For man has no thing, good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What words? It says, I commend joy. I mean, think about everything that's being written about in this chapter. It's like we're standing at a car crash scene and you're, you know, getting the lay of the land, and someone walks up to you and is like, hey, I commend joy, right? I mean, that's kind of, it's shocking, isn't it? This, this feels odd. After all, I mean, we live in wartime, right? Powers of darkness or evil are pressing around God's people. So who has the time, right, to sit back and just enjoy a nice meal? Right? Look around, we're, we're losing battles, you might say. There's too much at stake. But if we do so, we may even begin to believe that the Christian faith itself rests on your shoulders. If you think that, this will feel random to you. I love the quote by P.T. Forsyth. He's a Scottish theologian. He says, Our faith did not arise from the order of the world. The world's convulsions, therefore, need not destroy it. Rather, it arose from the sharpest crisis, the greatest war, the deadliest death, and the deepest grave the world ever knew in Christ's cross. So when we see here, I commend joy, we know that this has been said before, but this is with a different sort of enthusiasm. This isn't fake fading joy. This is real joy. There are real gifts of joy for you and I to experience in this life that are found under the sun, but they are only truly had when we have Christ. I mean, don't think that the gifts of God are like this carrot that's just dangled out in front of your nose that you'll never actually get. Right? These are real gifts that it's calling you to enjoy. So we don't merely then meditate on the fallenness of life. If that's all that we're doing, then we're not actually following the Scriptures. Right? We're, we're called here to actually enjoy the gifts of food, enjoy the gifts of friendship, of family, of laughter, of pleasure, and most deeply, the joy of salvation. I, mean, I, I hope after a week, like a week of prayer and fasting, you will enjoy food in a new way that directs your eyes to God. 
where you hear Jesus say in John 6, I am the bread of life. If anybody hungers and comes to me, you will never hunger again. This, This food that we enjoy in a meal, even, we are meant to enjoy it, but that joy isn't then fleeting. Because if you look for joy in that thing in and of itself, the moment that meal is over, the joy is gone, isn't it? And you're left facing the hard realities of life. But if you have Christ, the moment that meal is over, you still have a deeper joy that still remains, that can never be taken from you. You have the Father's love. Right? You have full forgiveness. Right? You have eternal security. The crowd may boo you, but you have the well-done approval from the Father. You have an unstealable hope that no one can take from you. You know that light overcomes darkness. As I'm singing with my kids last night, you know that song, Is He Worthy? We're singing, do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from shining through? The moment my meal's over, that's still true. There's joy that remains. I have freedom in Christ that no one can take from me. Find joy. See, Ecclesiastes 8 shows us that we can live joyful lives. But Christian joy does not cancel out the suffering. But also the suffering does not cancel out the joy. So let's not pretend that life isn't hard. But also the hardships don't cancel out the suffering or the joy. If if we pretend there's no hardship, guys, we don't understand our Bibles and we're living in a fake world that we've created. Life is hard. But if there is no joy in our minds, then we also aren't believing our Bibles. Because there is a joy that the world cannot take from you. There's a joy that this world is after. And God has given it to you in Christ. So find joy. These are pathways forward, so how will we be? How will we live? How will our faces appear? I thought there was a really helpful analogy I read this week by a guy named Zach Eswine. And he just says, imagine a basketball team made up of seven and eight-year-olds. Sounds fun, right? We're in a gym. It's appropriate, I just realized. Uh, He says, one team, they cheat, they trip, they trash talk, they push. Imagine the referees, they're friends with the cheating team's coaches. So it becomes obvious that the referees are biased in favor of the cheating team. Now imagine you are the coach of the other team. What do you tell your players? All those little seven and eight-year-old faces. What do you say? He says, you could tell them to quit. You could say, I hate this game. There's no point in trying because no matter what you do, we're not going to win and we're just going to get hurt in the process. Let's get out of here. He says, or you could tell them to return the same kind of behavior. You could say, I hate this game. Since it's all unfair and no one seems to care, the cards are stacked against us, let's just do the same thing to them. Let's cheat, let's trip, let's trash talk, let's push. The only way to get ahead is join them. He says the author of Ecclesiastes looks at both of those options. He fully understands what it means to hate how the game is being played. But when he thinks of walking away, he realizes that all this leaves is folly to win on the court. Folly then becomes the only game in town. Likewise, when he looks at joining in and fighting folly with folly, 
that still leaves only folly on the court. So he says, on the one hand, yes, I hate this life. There's hard realities here. But he says, I will oppose the life I hate with wisdom. Not because I will win in this world, I likely won't, but at least wisdom will remain on the court. At least folly will no longer offer the only game in town. At least those who watch the game will have an alternative set in front of their eyes. And those who play and get hurt will have a way of healing still available to them. I think in a different way, this will be on the screen. Blaise Pascal said, when everything is moving at once, nothing appears to be moving as on the board of a ship, which I don't know how many times we're on a ship. You know, so maybe the better way would be like if you're on I-84 and you're all going the same speed with the other cars next to you, nothing appears to be moving, right? He says, but when everyone is moving towards depravity, no one seems to be moving. But if someone stops... He shows up the others who are rushing on by acting as a fixed point. GBC, maybe be fixed, be a fixed point of wisdom in this world. May we be that fixed point, and we will only be that fixed point when Christ is our fixed point. When we look to the one who sat on top of the mountain and he saw the whole picture. When we read verse 17 and it says he cannot find it out, no, we look to the one who took on flesh and he's found it out. He sees it to the end. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who all of life is culminating into. When we look to him, the one who came down from the top of that mountain and he walked the path before us, he has seen the prosperity of the wicked. And he, the truly righteous one, experienced verse 14 in a way that you never will. To him it happened according to the deeds of the wicked. And because he was counted among the wicked, although he was perfectly righteous, you will find yourself at the end of verse 14, but not as a judgmental observer. You will find yourself in those words because he experienced the deeds of the guilty. Those who are guilty, right? Who aren't perfectly righteous will have it happen to them according to the deeds of the truly righteous one. That is the gospel. He is the one who with all power, yet we look at verse 9, and what do we do? We find him in verse 9, giving his life away at the hands of evil men who exercise their power over him, but the authority they, were, they even had was given to him by Jesus. I mean, we might sit in our suffering this morning and go, God, why is this happening and those are good, honest questions to ask God when we face hard realities of life. But we also need to ask the question, what other God has wounds? Ours does. And then through his death, we read the great reversal of verse 8, that there was a man who has power over the day of death. He experienced it. And he made it out alive. And He's come back up the trail, so to speak, and he says to you this morning, follow me. Trust me. As do you see, we don't need predictions about the future. We don't need to simply know the way. We need to be close to our God and fear him and enjoy him. We'll end with this. It's my favorite Martin Luther quote. 
He says, I may not know the way God leads me, but well do I know my guide. Father God, this morning as we uh, consider just the hard realities of life and your commands, your instruction to us to follow you in this path of wisdom, Lord, I pray um, that you would strengthen our hearts, Lord, that you would ground us in the truth of your Son and what you've done for us, and may we find uh, our deepest joy in him. That as the fleeting joys of life come and go, as the hardships come and go, Lord, or that we would know that at the end of the day, you are on your throne, God. You are the one seeing this through. We cannot find it out, but you, you have. Lord, you're creating this. You're orchestrating it. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts would rest in you today as your followers. And for those, Lord, who do not know you, I pray that you would uh, just reveal yourself to them. Maybe you reveal yourself to them, Lord, in their hardships and redirect their eyes towards your suffering son. We love you, Lord, and we're grateful, God, for your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.